Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone, as always, it is Alan Niven. Bonjour, monsieur. Bonjour, monsieur. Comment ça va? Uh, well, well, though I seem to be out of breath for some reason, but uh, we have got the one and only John Anderson uh, with us. Uh, we've had John on uh, many times before, and uh, always, always a, a pleasure to talk to him. Um were you a yes guy, by the way, going back to the old days? Because when you think of Jimi Hendrix and and you think of the bands you you worked with, Great White and, and Guns and Roses, there's a lot of blues rock. There's a lot of rock. There's a lot of even metal in there. I don't hear anything very progressive. Were, were you a progressive guy? Kind of yes and no. The terminology progressive, to my memory, got formulated and post applied to some records that journalists wanted to find a little genre title for, you know? So for example, in the court of the Kings and Crim, uh, in the court of the Crimson King, like King Crimson, and there's your mouthful for the day, um, wasn't necessarily quote unquote, a progressive record when it was released, but it was deemed to be so later. And similarly with bands like Yes and Coliseum, um, when they first put their records out, they were just bands who were doing something different and something interesting. And in terms of being a Yes man, I've never been a Yes man in my life, but I did enjoy going to go and see Yes, and I owned a couple of their records. And to give you an idea of how much I wanted to see Yes, in back in those days, if you didn't have any money, there was a way of tightrope walking on three walls that got you to the bathroom window of the Oxford Town Hall. And if you sent somebody in with a ticket, they'd open up that bathroom window and then you'd tightrope walk across these walls about 30 feet up and then dive through the window and get in and see the band. And my first Yes concert was through the bathroom window. But By the way, with with, jo- with John Anderson, yeah, um, I've probably mentioned it before, but there's an absolute hidden gem out there that was released, I think, in something like '91 or '92, where he made a record with a Japanese artist called Guitaro, and it's called Dream. And if you like John's voice, and if you're into yes music at all, you will love this record. Yeah, we, we've mentioned that before, and, and I've had a chance to check it out. It is a great record here, but I, um, we're recording this on January 4th. So I want to say, and I, normally we don't mention dates, but I'm going to mention it because for very specific, but on, and, and this is probably going to make everybody feel old, but on January 4th, 1972, so 48 years ago, 49 years ago now, actually, we're 2021, uh, Prog Rock Innovators, yes, released single Roundabout. So there you go. Were you around when it when it when it was a, a fresh hot single? And and do you like Roundabout? Oh, absolutely. I I had the album. It was on. Um, and my favorite favorite Yes album was the one with the green cover. That was that was the one that I played the most. But uh, did you ever tightrope walk across walls thirty foot up to get into a show for free? No, no. Uh, I what I do is I send an email, <laughs> and they send you a limo, and they send and they send uh, they send you a, a ticket link. And uh, no, 
Uh, and here, here's another one since we're doing January 4th uh, trivia. But uh, five years ago today on January 4th, so uh, 2016, do you know what happened? Because it relates no, sort of kind of to you. Un- hold, indirectly. Hold, hold on. Hold, hold on a second. Fourth or fifth, and I don't remember exactly which, God forgive me, but I think it's also um, Doc Neeson's birthday, so I'd like to say happy birthday, Doc. I still love you, even though you're gone from us. Yes, well, in fact, uh, January 4th, 1986 is when Phil Lynott had passed away, so we're doing all the January 4th stuff, but and uh, we, 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 of course, love Phil and, and uh, you know, Always condolences to his family that he passed away, but uh, January 4th... I, once, Deuce, I yes. once went to a party with Phil in it, and it was in the Fulham part of London, and the party came to a very abrupt and brief halt when somebody picked up... We used to have these big old metal dustbins, we used to call them, garbage cans called here, but in England we call them dustbins, and somebody took exception to the fact that the band were playing loudly in this storefront which had been painted over with some rock and roll imagery and they threw the dustbin through the window and i have a memory of seeing phil Linnett scarpering at top speed down the street and he went one way and i went well i think i'm going the other <laughs> ah, so you got to you got to hang out with phil but uh, i'm going to get to my my five years anniversary because there's still no new music, but uh, this is the day that Guns N' Roses in uh, 2016 updated all their social media and web presence with a picture of the logo and Coachella. And they didn't say anything, but everybody knew what that meant. And here we are on the fifth anniversary today and still no new yeah, music. Yeah, and there was that odd piece of paper that was put in front of us a while ago. I still think that's genuine, and I still think they're sitting on new music, and I still think that at some point it'll pop, and I hope it's good. But five years after the reunion tour announcement, and we're still sitting staring at, you know, live dates. It's like, all right, Night in This Lifetime tour, five years later, bravo, can we, you know, change the name of the tour? <laughs> and and and, mm. and release something even just even release the Coachella set as a as a live just some anyway anyway we're we're way off topic with uh, John Anderson so let us get over to John he's got a, a, a new product new stuff new everything here is the one the only the owner of a lonely heart John Anderson we are speaking with uh, rock and roll Hall of Famer John Anderson he is re-releasing song of seven and as we say here in montreal le bonjour john how are you very good bonjour to you too yes and i've asked you this before and and, and i'll get over to, to song of seven in a second here but when it comes to the career your career and the career of yes uh quebec and and sort of this eastern part of canada was very very important to you was it not i think so there was always that energy of Coming to uh, Quebec province and realizing that everybody likes the band. This is cool. You know, we, we traveled the world and uh, as a band and energy we got. I remember one time playing in Montreal uh, and a uh, big arena there and uh, they were still cheering half an hour later after we finished. <laughs> so we went back on and did, um, I think we did I'm Down, a Beatles song. That's a great song to, to cover. So, 
Let's get into Song of Seven. It came out in November of 1980. We are we are speaking here at the beginning beginning of December 2020. 40 year anniversary. Uh, just talk to me about that in terms of as a musician, as a creator, as somebody who who's, uh, has this creative energy. How is it to look back at something you were doing 40 years ago? Is it like sort of me looking at a high school picture, looking and going, "Oh, look at that hair," or do you look, or do you look back at it and go? Man, I I was in a zone. Well, I I honestly, the the last uh, ten years has gone by so fast uh, that when you look back forty years, it's hard to believe, really. Um, so when I think about Song of Seven, I, I was in that sort of space where I, I really felt great with what Yes had done over that ten year period, finishing with. Uh, the, the album, I think it was, um, well, they made it in, in, Mont- in, in, in Montreux, in Switzerland, and it was, uh, what was it called? It had Awaken on it, so I felt really good that musically, we'd actually done something really important, musically speaking, for that 10-year period, and to be able to do a solo album was no, just normal. You know, record company said, do you want to do another solo album? And I said, yeah, I can do that. So they gave me money to, to get on with it. And uh, those days have gone totally. But 40 years ago, it was like a gift to go into a studio and just write songs, you know. And uh, lo and behold, I started doing little bits of composition here and then the opposite, doing very simple songs. And uh, I, was, I was able to get some very talented people like friends that I knew, new friends that they knew, and all of a sudden I've got people coming into the studio in my house in London every other day, and uh, it all turned out to be a really just an enjoyable experience to make uh, Song of Seven. It really did. So I'm going to focus on the album a bit more in a second here, but at the same time, at the beginning of that year, you put out the the album Short Stories with Vangelis. Um Talk to me about that in terms of having this creative energy to do two albums a year. And what was that like for you in terms of making that album and then getting on the road and then getting over to to your own solo album? How did did you see your career at that time? Because you were were taking a break from Yes or you were out from Yes. Were you trying to forge a new band with Vangelis? Were you trying to forge a solo career? Were you trying to do both? Where were you in terms of, of career at that time? everything you just said. I think uh, Vangelis really changed my perception of music because he was a very spontaneous creator in his studio. And I just went into his studio. We became friends. I tried to get him into Yes, but that didn't work out. So I'd go in his studio listening to him composing for films. And, and then one day I walked in and he was playing some music. And I looked over, I said, is the microphone working? He said, oh, yeah, sing, sing. So I started singing. And we wrote three songs in a row, which became the, the, the basis of uh, the first album together. And what I realized was that uh, it was this spontaneity within, within him that I would get with Steve, how, but then I had to develop it through the, the in, in, information I would get from the band, as they perform the songs, I'd start thinking of ideas and so on. But with Vangelis, we actually, and it's hard to explain, but every song we ever did was the first take. And 
we would do like a two-minute piece and then a three-minute idea, then a one-minute idea. And then Vangelis would say, okay, I'll edit them together and you figure out what you were singing about. So I'd go into the corner with my headphones and he'd do some edits and add some beautiful sounds and I'd figure out what I was trying to sing about and then walk in and sing it. So within the space of a couple of hours, we'd done a piece of music. And that's what we always did. It had to be the first take uh, because it's like chance music in a way. So I had a very good energy about doing any kind of album after that because I felt that I was really learning uh, a definite way of uh, expressing myself musically and not worrying too much about, you know, basically uh, what the song was going to become. You know, you just do it. And that's one of the great things about Van Garris. And uh, as it happens, when we got into other albums, uh, like Friends of Mr. Cairo, which did very well in Canada, one of the big selling records there, but we couldn't sell anything in America for some reason, because I think the Van Garris's manager had a big argument with the record company executive. And then he said to, oh, forget that album. We're not going to sell that. And it sold so many in, in Canada. I'm so blessed that at least uh, Canadians welcomed the music I was doing with Van Gellis. And I, I just loved that I was spreading my wings in, in a sort of way, musically speaking. And emotionally, I'd gone to it as a solo artist with a band and do animation. That kind of thing, you know, just opens up. You never think that you're going to last another four or five years. You never think about that. And here we are 40 years later. It's kind of amazing. It is. Okay, so let me ask you that about this, because uh, Vangelis always talked about spontaneity of music and being spontaneous, and, and I think you were even going to call the album Spont at some point to, to go with that, but how is that process for you compared to, for example, Oleus of Sunhillo, where you were trying to get all the horns and the this and the that, and do, do you prefer just to walk in and, and, and be spontaneous or do you prefer to sit there and have all this production and, and, and think about the bells and the whistles and where this, the sound's going to go? What is sort of your favorite yeah. way of doing it? Every, everything. Every, every, every time I create music, I was, I was just singing a song before you rang that I, I wrote yesterday with a friend of mine who lives in Orlando. He sent me a beautiful guitar work and I just sang this sort of idea, and then I decided to to to, to re-sing exactly the same sounds that I was trying to make, and I call it Opionian for some reason. And uh, what was inspiring for me was this constant door opening over the beginning of around the eight, you know, 1980, around that you know, around that period of time when the 80s was coming. The doors were opening, and I was learning so much about music that uh, I would try anything. And uh, with Van Gelis, you never know what's going to come out of his keyboards. He, he's just uh, a master of the, the mystical, magical world of music. Oh, he, he absolutely is. In, in fact, uh, talk to me also a little bit about your, your musical vision, because over the years, you know, we, we go back to, I guess, the, the late 60s, early 70s, We've gone from progressive music. We, we've done more. Uh, I don't. Air not not Arab sounding music, but more. Um, you know what I'm trying to say. More more uh, Middle Eastern kind of stuff. You've had pop stuff. We've had the MTV hits. 
Is there a, a style that you prefer or do you prefer to be the guy that will just do what's in his head and that's my musical statement for this for this time? It's exactly what you say. It's like I have a feeling that I'm working on something very special all the time. I've been working on this project now for uh, six months uh, since we went into quarantine, which I, I recorded just before I toured 1,000 Highlands uh, last year. And uh, you can actually go to um, YouTube, I think. It's John Anderson, Joyfulness, Thankfulness, Gratefulness, Hopefulness. And the four pieces of music. Now, when I got home from touring, I started driving around doing errands with my car, and I had the music in the car, and I was listening to it and thinking, wow, this is kind of interesting music. Maybe I should sing on it. And that's what I've been doing. I've been actually singing on this music that I recorded in one week in September of last year. And it's as though my whole world has been taken over by this totally different perception of music as well. And uh, it's a it's very exciting time because uh, on the one hand, I, I released uh, the 1000 Hands album uh, this year. And then I released uh, a song that I wrote 12 years ago called Screw You. So I really feel like I'm running the gamut musically now. You really are. And, and, and speaking of running the musical gamut, uh, I, since we are talking sort of anniversaries, I just want to take you back to one that has a 50th anniversary, which is, of course, Time and a Word uh, by Yes. And, and there's jazz, pop, folk. There's all kinds of stuff going on in there. Um, how important was that sophomore album for what that band was doing and what you were doing in terms of pushing boundaries? Because we come out of the years of Elvis and and and, and the Beatles and and we have these, you know, three-minute pop songs going all over radio. And then Yes comes around, and Time and a Word comes around, and you go, oh, okay, this is new, this is intriguing. Um, talk to me about the 50th anniversary of Time and a Word for a second. Well, it was a very, very important moment, because we'd, we'd, we'd done the first Yes album, and uh, the reaction was okay. We were touring a lot. And uh, we were told by the record company, you need to make another album. So we we got together and I'd written some songs, uh, one of them was Time and Word. And all I could think about was like with orchestra, you know, if you really do, do something different, you know, you just can't be a band playing the songs. Why don't we just work with an orchestra, which we actually did. And I was listening to uh, one of the songs was the Richie Haven song, but no experience necessary, which is a really special song because we've been on tour with Richie Haven and the production of that on that record is, is pretty good. And then we did uh, a, a song by Buffalo Springfield. Look at the sad goodbyes, everything's a wasting time sort of thing. But the orchestration is really magical. So in a way, I felt we were moving forward musically um, the record didn't do that well, but it, it pushed us along getting ready for the Yes album. So we, we had to go through this period of not really knowing who we were musically. So quick, get an orchestra in, make it sound better, you know. And then we we found ourselves about it. We went on tour after we finished it. And then I said to the guys, why don't we all live in a, in a sort of, in a farmhouse way, way down in Cornwall, Devon or somewhere like that. 
we get away from London because I don't think it's doing us any good, musically speaking, you know. And that's when we went and wrote these songs for the Yes album, um, the third album. And uh, that inspired us to move on. So you, you have to go through the, these experiences of, like we did with the orchestra uh, that didn't, didn't quite work in my mind, in my consciousness. But every now and again, I'll hear a track from that album and think, Hey, that was pretty good. Well, listen, it was pretty good because here we are 50 years later still talking about the music that you created and you and the guys created. And, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, what other compliment can you can you get? I mean, that, I mean, people liked it, right? You win. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, right? it's like a dream in a way. You get into this place where, as I said, I've been working on all this music this past uh, six months now or so. And... Uh, Gosh, I must have about four, four or five albums that need to be released in the next two or three years of music and musical ideas. And uh, it's a question now of, you know, I've got another, I think I've got another four months of being at home, which me and my wife are really enjoying a lot. And uh, just getting on with work and, and feeling that the next three or four months will actually bring a picture up of all the projects that I want to get finished for the next uh, 10 years, if you like. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to take what you just said, and I'm going to ask you, which is clearly a, a, a dumb question, but I'm going to ask you the dumb question. Why not put the pen down and just say, hey, I've done 50 years of this. I'm just going to go out when I tour and play and, and play owner, owner of a Lonely Heart. I'm just going to give you the hits. Oh, no. Why? Why? No, 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 no. I was always afraid of doing that, you know, as, a, as an artist. Uh, you know, I'd see uh, some R&B people on late night TV doing their three hits and that kind of thing. And I, I, I said, I never want to go there. You know, I, I never just want to go and play the hits. I'd, I'd rather sneak them in in a show, but get on with some big show of a different kind of music, like I did with 1,000 Hands. We, we, we had a great time with an ensemble that could create an orchestra here or a big band sound there. And, uh, you know, the next year I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of going on tour with uh, these young teenagers that I'm working with, uh, the Academy of Rock, created by Paul Green, who created the School of Rock way, way back in uh, year 2000. And I used to work and tour with these kids. And... Uh, one of the guy called Zach, he was, he was 15 when he was playing in the School of Rock Tour in 2001, I think it was, 2002. And he actually played in 1,000 Hands Band. You know, so it's like, I've got all these wonderful singers now working on the new piece of music that work in the Academy of Rock in Connecticut there. So, you know, I'm not going to sit down and smoke a pipe. I'm just going to get on with the next project. See that, and that's so refreshing because listen, there are some that I know of that that will say very publicly in in interviews, "I'm not doing another album. There's no point. It it costs money. Nobody buys things anymore. Yada yada <laughs> yeah." And it, it's refreshing yeah. to hear somebody say, "I don't care about that. I, I'm a I'm an artist. I I create." Um, I know we're going to run out of time, so I'm going to ask you this real quick. You have the relationship with Esoteric Records. They've put out a Song of Seven. They put out the Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe expanded edition, Change We Must. Is is this a relationship that is going to move forward with a whole bunch of other 
remasters and expanded editions, or you did these like three, four, five, and we're done, or um, what can fans expect in terms of reissues and revisiting some of the uh, classic albums? Well, I've just, uh, a friend of mine called Mick Byrne has uh, a website on on YouTube, and he's done maybe 60 of my songs, and yes, his songs, visually. Uh, we've become friends, and he's, he's more inspiring every, every week. This guy, he lives in Northern Ireland. He, he never stops creating, and he just did a remarkable piece from uh, way, way back, uh, Gates of Delirium with, it, with a full orchestra, and he's visual, visualized it, and it's just, I'll send it to you. I'll, I'll find out your email and then send it to you today. All, it's it's remarkable. The idea that I... Sorry? I was going to say, my email is easy. I'll tell it for the whole world. It's mitch at mitchlafon.com. There you go. Mitch at mitchlafon.com. Feel, feel free, anybody, to write me. I'll answer. Let me spell Lafon. L-A-F-O-N. L-A-F... Oh, good. That's easy. Yeah. Email... AOL.com? No, no, no. Uh, Mitch at MitchLafon.com. So, oh. Yeah, nice and easy. Dot com. I got it. Yeah, and I look forward to, to getting that. Um, but it, it, it's, yeah, it, it, it's nice it's for fans. That, Go ahead. Well, I, I had this feeling uh, uh, last year that wouldn't it be great to release the epics of Yes, you know, in one major... Uh, sort of package, if you like, and they're all visualized as well in 3D without glasses. Now that's what I want to want to do, you know. But uh, we're slowly getting there. But the the visualization of uh, Mind Drive, you can actually see that on YouTube. It's very very good by Mick Byrne, Mickey Byrne, um, and uh, the other one is, uh, of course, you want to do Close to the Edge and. Uh, as I said, Case of Delirium really looks good. And so I said, if we can get, you know, seven or eight of the big, yes, epics in a, in a more progressive uh, situation, shall we say. So it sounds like you'll hear Case of Delirium with the orchestra. It just sounds so wonderful. I was so surprised. I haven't listened to it since we actually did the tour in 2002. Steve's in the band and Chris. Chris's bass is unbelievable. It's, it's it's remarkable how how brilliant he was. I always thought he was brilliant, but on this uh, version of Gates of Delirium, he really he really is incredible. And Alan White's playing beautiful drums. We have a, a young guy. Uh, I can't remember his name now on keyboards because uh, Rick wasn't interested in the touring. So, uh, the, but the version is still good. Uh, if anybody likes Awaken, if, if you Google. Awaken uh, Todd Mobile Iceland. That is the best sounding version of Awaken I've ever heard. I don't know what it is. We did it with a full choir and orchestra in Iceland in Reykjavik uh, 10 years ago. And it's like, if, if this music that, that uh, yes, did, uh, like Starship Trooper and uh, Close to the Edge, of course, and You and I, uh, ritual, revealing, all these large-scale pieces, if, if you can find really different, not different so much as best recordings, either live or not, you know, 
uh, and then you you visualize them as well. And that would be a good presentation, especially at this point in time, what YES was really all about. And that's why, in a way, we have so many YES fans that stuck with the band through thick and thin <laughs> as it went on its journey over the years, you know. It's been a great journey, and uh, we're, we've reached our time, so I'll finish with this. Next year, we're looking at 30 years of the Union album. Uh, yeah. j- just send me off with a quick 30th anniversary uh, nod to Union. I mean, an important album in the band's history. Uh, you sounded great on it, but then again, when do you ever not sound great? I mean, you sound great on everything. Thanks. Um Thanks. Any Any kind of celebrations uh, in, in plan, or are you just going to sort of... Say, hey, folks, 30 years, man. Great stuff. I'll call you. (laughs) (laughs) So is it Mitch with a T, M-I-C-H or M-I-T-C-H? M-I-T-C-H, and then it's at M-I-T-C-H, L-A-F-O-N dot com. Good. And yes, uh, do do call me for the 30th anniversary. And uh, we've spoken three times, I think, in the last year or year and a half. Always, always a pleasure. Always looking forward to it. And as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Absolute pleasure. Always. Merci beaucoup. I wish you well. Tout à l'heure. Oui. Cheers. Merci. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.